Welcome to the Appalachian Folklore Podcast, a wild hike through the history and migration of the folk culture, stories, traditions, and hates hidden in the hills and hollows of Appalachia. I'm your host, Aaron Bobbitt. Hey folks, welcome to this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. Thank you all so much for joining me again this month, and thank you for the kind words about last month's episode on Death Omens. It seemed to do really well. I'd also like to uh, thank you all for the feedback about these stories from the Cabin episode on Cornish Pisky Tales. I also wanted to thank Anna Charlton again and her book Cornish Folk Tales of Place that I used for that episode. I'm really enjoying these stories episodes because I get to look back through books I've read or half-read and I'm also getting to finally open books I've bought and let sit on my shelf for too long. It's also helping me practice my storytelling and uh, just being comfortable in front of the microphone at all, honestly. I know I'm no Dan Schulz or Eddie Lenahan or Owen Staten or Steve Gilly, but I do respect and adore storytelling uh, as a craft and folk and fairy tales in general. And I would love to do my part as best I can in passing along these stories in any way possible. So let's get started with this month's episode on bee and beekeeping folklore, folk remedies, and the like. The inspiration to do this episode came from a different podcast, one I wrote and researched for over the spring and summer of 2022, called Southern Appalachian Wild, hosted by Judy Clinton Doolin. I found this quote from Mark Norman, one of my folklore heroes, in those notes. So I'm not sure if it made the final cut into the Southern Appalachian Wild episode, but it's clearly relevant here, at least for its analogy. In episode 5 of the History and Folklore podcast titled Telling the Bees from July 7th, 2020, Mark is talking to the host, Holly, about his research interests and how they're predominantly UK-based folklore interests. He says, talking about the research for his book titled Telling the Bees, which I'm going to be quoting from quite a bit, I wanted to take it further than that because so much of the history and so much of the superstition that lies behind these kind of crafts isn't necessarily based in one country. And he goes on to say, Folklore and stories travel as people travel along migratory routes. Stories get absorbed into other cultures and take on elements of that culture. And I thought bees were a perfect analogy for folklore transmission after reading these quotes. Bees have a hive, their place of origin or the home of their community, but travel great distances communicating to their own community as to where they've been, as well as other communities they may come across. And it made sense to me that passing of informal traditional culture along migratory routes and the subsequent absorption and adoption of stories, it just seemed an apt analogy, and I thought I'd share that with you before I started. And start, I shall. Bees are, it will not surprise you, very, very old. They have made a lot of people very happy and are widely regarded as a good move. 135 million years ago, pollinators began to evolve to eat pollen, and plants began to evolve to attract specific pollinators. Bees evolved from wasps, and that genetic divergence happened approximately 130 million years ago. Now, there are roughly 25,000 known species, 250 of which are what we can call the bumblebee. And a quick aside on the name bumblebee, 
Reading from my autographed copy of Mark Norman's book, Telling the Bees and Other Customs, The Folklore of Rural Crafts, its name in this form didn't emerge until the 20th century, however. Charles Darwin would have referred to this as the humble bee. This was not because of the mundane nature of its work, but simply because as it flew, it hummed. So how did this name change come about? There are a couple of possibilities. In Beatrix Potter's 1910 story, The Tale of Mrs. Tittlemouse, the chief character responsible for making nests in the garden is named Babbity Bumble. Maybe this planted the seed of the name. At a similar time, the apocryphal story emerged that the bee's aerodynamic design meant that it was impossible for it to fly under the known laws of physics. Discussions turned to the bee bumbling around between plants. In the next major publication on bees in the 1950s, the term humblebee had gone and was replaced by what we now know. As an interesting aside, the archaic term was developed in one other way. Author J.K. Rowling, who often draws on folklore within her Harry Potter universe, chose the name Dumbledore for her headmaster because she saw him, quote, wandering around the castle humming to himself. The oldest fossil of a bee is encased in amber from 80 million years ago. The oldest depiction of honeybee production is in an inscription in Egypt from Pavasa's tomb circa 650 BCE. From the aforementioned episode of Southern Appalachian Wild, Bee for the Bees, from May 23, 2020, host Judy Clinton Doolin says, and I wrote, Apiculture, the domestication of bees, in Egypt dates back approximately 4,500 years. Beekeeping pottery was found in North Africa dating back 9,000 years, and images depicting humans gathering honey from wild bees in Spain was found dating back 10,000 years. As for earlier depictions of bees in mythology, Icy Sedgwick, host of the fabulous blog and podcast, Fabulous Folklore, says in her episode from May 9th, 2020, titled, Why Are Bees Considered Such Good Luck in Folklore? And I'm paraphrasing here. Bees were seen as messengers between the worlds of the living and the dead by Greek, Roman, and Celtic societies. The Irish goddess Brigid had an apple orchard in the other world where rivers ran with mead which, for those of you not in the alcohol biz like me, is fermented, diluted honey, or some people call it honey wine. Romans believed Jupiter gave bees their sting in order to defend their honey. Juno, Jupiter's wife, thought that this was a very special gift indeed, and that they should repay Jupiter. That's why they die when they sting humans. Also, in Norse mythology, Odin, in the form of an eagle, drank and then stole the meat of poetry from Suttungr, to give as a gift to the gods, some of which dripped out of his anus, and that was considered a lesser form of poetry meant for the common rabble. Bragi is the Norse god of poetry, ceremony, and of skalds. Those are like bards or singer-songwriters. His wife, Ithun, is a goddess associated with apples and youth. So here we see honey and mead, poetry and apples, all tied up in a loose little Volknut that harkens back to Brigid and her otherworldly orchard and mead river. As we can see, bee stories are very old. But what about the folklore and folk practices surrounding bees in Appalachia? The strongest link between Appalachia and the olden times in England, Scotland, and Ireland is the practice of telling the bees. It's a folk custom practiced by beekeepers and beekeeping families. And I had the pleasure of speaking with one of these fine beekeeping people 
a gentleman by the name of Derek Askew, who is a beekeeping hobbyist turned brewery owner. I spoke with him a while back when I was doing research for Southern Appalachian Wild. I didn't say it before, but Judy's podcast is more science than folklore, since she's a science educator. So the questions I asked Derek were more about preventing and dealing with certain kinds of mites, and the overall things one may want to know when starting out in beekeeping. I mentioned the practice of telling the bees to him, and he said that he'd never heard of it himself. But as I went on telling him what it was, he said that he had heard of it from his uncle, but he'd never actually done it himself, which, as you're about to find out, is a good thing. His brewery, by the way, is called Bearded Bee in Wendell, North Carolina. So if any of you listening to this are ever in the Wendell, North Carolina area, you can always hit me up on the socials or email, and we can meet up. You know, there's quite a bit to do there. It's a beautiful place in a small town with a great patio, atmosphere, wonderful glassware, which is important, and the beer is phenomenal. And while I'm on the tangent train, here's a quick history of bees coming to and swarming through America. From old-time country wisdom and lore, Thousands of Traditional Skills for Simple Living by Jerry Mac Johnson. Not native to the Americas, bees were brought to our continent in early colonial days by Spanish and British settlers. Black bees, obtained from a bee colony owned by pilgrims in Holland, were the first to be introduced. They were brought to Massachusetts in the 1600s and soon escaped to the forests. In William Penn's time, bee trees were numerous in the woods of eastern Pennsylvania. Until about 1750, bees had not yet traveled beyond the Susquehanna River. During the 1800s, they swarmed across the Mississippi as far as the Rockies, always maintaining a 100-mile lead over the ever-westering frontier. The Indians noted the advance of bees with apprehension, recognizing that the white man's fly was a precursor of the invaders' intrusion into new territories. The bees progressed over the countryside at a rate of about 10 miles per year, lured westward by flower-blanketed prairies and hollow cottonwood trees. By the early 1800s, bee trees extended some 600 miles up the Missouri River. Gathering honey soon became a trade, some trees containing 8 to 10 gallons each. Colonial settlers and frontiersmen were not alone in collecting honey. Black bears quickly became adept at pilfering it from bee trees. Previously, corn stalks had the sweetest food in the Western Indian's diet. Now they, along with black bears, rapidly developed a zeal for honey. Black bears stole honey from the bees. The Indians robbed the men, collecting it. Even if bees produced no honey, they would perform a valuable service in their role as pollinators. In addition to pollinating flowers, bees fertilize many of our most important agricultural crops, among them alfalfa, cucumbers, melons, and almonds. Most persons associate bees with pollination and honeymaking. Few regard the bee itself as food. However, some primitive people considered roasted bees and wasps a delectable dish. So exactly what is the folk custom of telling the bees? In short, the beekeeper has to tell the bees of all the comings and goings, all the good and bad news, of births, weddings, and especially deaths. From the article Legends and Lore of Bees by Patty Wigington from August 22, 2019, In some areas of New England and Appalachia, it is believed that once someone died, it was important for the family to go tell the bees of the death. Whoever kept the bees for the family would make sure the bees got the news, so that they could spread it around. 
I'd like to put a pin in that, or a little stinger, as it were, for just a moment. Just as important as telling the bees of the beekeeper's death are the funerary practices surrounding the event. From the Frank C. Brown Collection of North Carolina Folklore, Popular Beliefs and Superstitions from North Carolina, from 1964, when a member of the family dies, the beehives must be draped in black cloth to make sure they don't leave. If you fail to move your bees when a family member dies, all the bees will die as well. From the article Bee Folklore and Superstitions, the author writes, It was the case that when the beekeeper had passed away, food and drink from the funeral was left near the hives for the bees. Sometimes the hives would be lifted and then put down at the same time as the funeral. It was draped in a mourning cloth and rotated to face the funeral procession. There's an echo of this, or perhaps a root, as the author goes on to say, in parts of the Pyrenees where they buried an old piece of clothing belonging to someone who had died under the hive. Many people believed the bees and hives should never be given away, sold, or swapped after their keeper had died as it brought bad luck. And why tell the bees at all, you might be wondering. Go ahead and pull that stinger out, and don't worry, I'll have plenty of bee sting folk remedies coming up. Icy Sedgwick gives the reason as essentially this, and again, I'm paraphrasing. Bees are incredibly social little things, and they are quite the gossips. And much like small-town gossips, they're also easily offended. Should the bees catch wind of their owner's good or bad fortune whilst visiting a neighboring farm or field, they would most certainly not be happy to hear the news secondhand. The worry here is that they will become so cross with the keeper they'll stop producing honey, or worse, leave the hive for good. A beekeeper must always keep a calm tone while speaking to their bees, must never swear, and should keep them happy with an occasional song. This is echoed by Tipper Presley of the website Blind Pig and the Acorn in her article Bee Folklore. Honeybees will not do well in a quarrelsome family, nor do honeybees like to hear bad language, they prefer to be talked to politely and quietly. Once again, from Mark Norman's book, Telling the Bees, In both England and America, we find other beliefs relating to who may or may not get harmed by bees. These all seem to tie in with the idea of bees liking peace and harmony. In Maryland, it was recorded that bees would not harm anyone who showed a good disposition. And in England, it was recorded in William Ellis's 1750 book, Modern Husbandman, that all that keep bees should love them, for these hate those that hate them. A farmer's wife loved them very much, but her husband hated them, they who sting him, but not her. I have an excerpt here from Telling the Bees, a poem by John Greenleaf Whittier from 1894. Remember when I said I have a bunch of books I bought and subsequently put on the shelf unopened? Turns out I actually have a copy of this poem in an 1896 collection of his poetry, which I thought was pretty cool. So the excerpt goes, Before them, under the garden wall, forward and back, went drearily singing the chore girl small, draping each hive with a shred of black. Trembling I listened, the summer sun had the chill of snow, for I knew she was telling the bees of one gone on the journey we all must go. Then I said to myself, My Mary weeps for the dead today, 
Haply her blind old grandsire sleeps the fret and the pain of his age away. If bees are so intertwined with a beekeeper and their family to the point that they're considered to actually be part of the family themselves, it's not hard to imagine folks in Appalachia have a few superstitions and turns of phrase concerning bees, as well as omens and portents for just about everything. From Old Time Country Wisdom and Lore by Jerry Mac Johnson once again, country people maintained that lightning never struck where there were honeybees. When a storm is nigh, bees will not swarm. When bees make but short trips from the hive or stay within, rain is due. When bees to distance wing their flight, days are warm and skies are bright. But when their flight ends near at home, stormy weather is sure to come. And, best of all, bees are not good weather prophets as they will continue to leave their hive when a storm is imminent. Here are a few more bee tips from the Frank C. Brown collection of NC folklore. The success of swarming bees can be told in the following verse. Swarm in May, worth a load of hay. Swarm in June, worth a silver spoon. Swarm in July, not worth a fly. And rob your bees during the new moon and they'll produce more honey next time. And finally, simply, it's bad luck to sell bees. The superstition here is this. If you sell your bees and receive payment into your hand, you will have sold your luck with your bees. To sell bees, you must have the buyer lay the payments on a rock and refrain from picking up the money until the bees are gone with their new owner. I also found some folklore on news bees, which are not bees at all, but I will put this in here because, hey, it's bee folklore nonetheless. Dave Tabler of the website Appalachian History writes, It is said that if a yellow news bee perches on someone's finger, it's good luck. On the other hand, a black news bee signifies imminent death. News bees hover around close to folks, even seeming to look into their eyes at times, because they are listening. After listening to the latest news, the bees take it back through the community, sharing the information along the way. And for those of you who don't know what a news bee is, he goes on to explain, the species known as the news bee is not technically a bee, but a type of fly. The yellow jacket hoverfly, Melissa virginiensis, is named for the ability to hover over flowers. It is often mistaken for a hornet because of its aggressive flying and buzzing, but unlike hornets and bees, it only has two wings instead of four. Now let's move on to beeswax and its uses around the home in folk remedies and essential everyday items, as well as one of my favorite subjects, witchcraft. From Down Home Ways, Old Fangled Skills for Making Hundreds of Simple, Useful Things by Jerry Mac Johnson, here is a recipe titled Preparation for Chap Lips. Melt one ounce of spermaceti and two ounces of beeswax in a glass double boiler. A glass bowl set in a saucepan of hot water will also do. Keep the heat very low. Add one quarter cup of honey and blend it in well. Slowly pour in one half cup of sweet almond oil. Take the upper part of the double boiler from the stove and stir the contents until cool. Before the mixture solidifies, pour it into a small, shallow jar and put on the lid. Use this preparation as a remedy for chapped lips. And for those of you who don't know what spermaceti is, like me, from Wikipedia, 
Spermaceti is a waxy substance found in the head cavities of the sperm whale. Spermaceti is created in the spermaceti organ inside the whale's head. This organ may contain as much as 1,900 liters of spermaceti. It has been extracted by whalers since the 17th century for human use in cosmetics, textiles, and candles. Moving on. From Folk Medicine in Southern Appalachia by Anthony Cavender, mutton tallow alone or in combination with other ingredients, such as rose water, glycerin, beeswax, pine resin, or balm of Gilead oil, was applied to dry or skin-cracked hands. Mineral oil, sweet oil, olive oil, turpentine with beeswax, vinegar, earwax, and commercial salves like cloverine, vaseline, and rosebud were also used, as was bag balm, a commercial salve for cow udders. A single report from southwestern Virginia has it that washing one's hands in fresh cow blood was a good cure but the author has encountered this remedy in eastern Tennessee as well. Many of the remedies used for dry skin were also used for chapped lips, cloverine and rosebud salves, or earwax, for example. An informant in eastern Tennessee offered the following chapped lips remedy. I knew an old man who said to put chicken manure on chapped lips. Said it wouldn't cure it, but it would sure keep you from licking your lips. And my grandfather said the same thing. In a section for Scald Head, Alex Stewart, a Yarb doctor from eastern Tennessee, reported in an interview conducted in the 1970s that he had treated several people for scald head, but that he had not treated a case in 50 years. Stewart described scald head as a scalp infection, a mean disease, that caused partial or total hair loss. He told about a neighbor who wore a hat all the time to conceal his bald, scabrous head. He'd go to church and sit way in the back and never pull his hat off, he said. He's ashamed. Stewart remembered whole families that suffered from scald head. His treatment was a thick application of a salve made from pine rosin, resin, beeswax, camphor, and turpentine, and then covering the head with a cloth. The salve apparently cured the disease, but it resulted in the complete loss of hair, which never grew back. From Grandma Putt's Old Time Vinegar, Garlic, baking soda, and 101 more problem solvers by Jerry Baker, here's a recipe for beeswax furniture polish. Most modern commercial furniture polishes are made with silicone, and these products work just fine on newer wood, but they give antique pieces an unnatural, you could even say phony-looking, shine. Grandma polished her treasured tables and cabinets with this homemade formula, and I still use it on the ones she left me. Ingredients. Two ounces of beeswax, 5 eighths cup of turpentine, very hot, almost boiling water. Coarsely grate the wax and put it in a glass jar that has a screw-on lid. A mayonnaise jar is perfect. Add the turpentine and screw the lid loosely on the jar. Stand the jar in a heat-proof bowl and pour the water into the bowl so that it comes to or just above the level of the wax. Let the jar sit in the water until the wax has melted. Then, remove the jar and shake it gently until a paste forms. Let the mixture cool, then pour it into a wide-necked jar, like a clamp-top canning jar, for storage. If the polish hardens, soften it up again by standing the jar in warm water. To use the polish, rub it onto the wood with a clean, soft cotton cloth, and buff with a second cloth. Here's a little cunning folk folk custom for y'all. Witch balls! What are witch balls? 
Aaron Oberon, author of Southern Cunning, Folkloric Witchcraft in the American South, has this to say. The source of the Southern witches' curses and hexes, the witch ball, is one of the few tools the folklore gives an actual recipe for. However, most of these ingredients are used to illustrate how horrible witches are in folklore. Some of these nasties have been kept while others have been replaced. The creation is also done with other witches and is a communal effort. This doesn't necessarily need to be done with a traditional coven, but just some like-minded witches to work with. The creation of witch balls should only be done on Friday the 13th. Before this date, the witches in attendance should, through divination and common sense, determine the ingredients and who should bring what. There is a strong importance on bringing the correct ingredients and amounts. The most crucial ingredients are the hair of each witch plucked at the end of the ritual and the wax itself to make the balls. All else can be determined by the coven for their specific cursing needs. Some of my suggestions would be pepper powder, coffin nail rust, powdered lizard, graveyard dirt of a criminal, ground agrimony, bone dust, stinging nettle, ashes, mace, and the traditional spider's legs. The traditional consequences for forgetting an ingredient are lashes from the devil with a rose thorn and a decreased amount of witch balls. A witch who has brought all her ingredients received 13, one who brought part received 7, and one who brought none received 3. The lashes can be replaced by some other unpleasant act or done without completely. Set up your double boiler and place some wax in each. Each witch adds an ingredient, naming the purpose of the ingredient. Pepper to burn, graveyard dirt to bring illness, powdered lizard to bring quick results, and so on. The witches then surround the mixture, bring up the witch fire from their bellies, and gather the power of their familiars around to chant. To this mystic mirth, to make a witch ball, I, the witch father, doth stir, to place curses on one and all. Stir the mixture so that the ingredients are not pooling together. Pour the mixture into containers. I use mini cupcake papers for portion control. Allow it to cool and semi-harden. While still pliable, the head of the coven takes globs of the mixture and wraps around each one of the hairs from a coven member, themselves included. When each ball is made, they are portioned out. Doing this with a coven not only shares power, but acts, in a sense, as an omen-taking. The amount of balls you receive is indicative of the limit of maleficium that should be performed in that year. The work is structured for a group. However, that shouldn't stop a single individual from making these tools. Traditionally, the witch ball was thrown at the target and retrieved by the witch at a later time so as not to lose them losing a bit of power and also risking the wrath of the devil beating them. However, in modern times, going around throwing wax balls is not the most secretive way of cursing. Rather, a modern witch can and should include the witch balls in more specific cursing spells. And the author goes on to list how witch balls can be used with things like the melting roof curse, poppet, witch's bridal, counter cursing, lantern, exorcism, and healing. I won't get into all of those details here. I recommend you buy the book Southern Cunning, Folkloric Witchcraft in the American South by Aaron Oberon. Should any of y'all want to grow your own pollinator garden, here's a little bit of info that could help you because bees and other pollinators like butterflies and fairies need as much help as they can get nowadays. From Ask an Expert, Best Pollinator Plants for the Garden, 
Some plants they recommend for your garden are stonecrop, milkweed, coneflower, sunflower, lavender, hummingbird mint, goldenrod, cape fuchsia, yarrow, California lilac, and bluebeard. I'd also like to mention the Appalachian Beekeeping Collective at www.abchoney.org and the article by Hannah Gillespie from June 7, 2008, titled Appalachian Beekeepers Protect Honeybee Health, Protecting America's Predominant Pollinator. I didn't use those works here in this episode, but I did use them for my research on Southern Appalachian Wild, and I'd like for you to check those out. They're full of information on how to help the bees. I have a few folk remedies for bee stings I'd like to share with you as my normal outro to each episode. I saw a lot of references to placing raw onions on bee stings to draw out the poison. The same goes for red clay. I'd first like to include from Anthony Cavender's Folk Medicine in Southern Appalachia how bee stings can be used as treatment to help goiters. Remedies reported in folk medicine sources do not distinguish among the different kinds of goiter recognized by official medicine. Interestingly, many of the folk remedies for goiter involved objects that could both absorb and prevent a goiter, such as wearing a necklace made of the seed pods of Job's tears, amber beads, or gold beads. Another frequently reported remedy involved binding a live toad frog to the goiter and leaving it there until it died, or rubbing the goiter with a toad frog and then burying it under the drip of a house. There were many people known as goiter rubbers, sometimes a seventh son, who could rub a goiter and make it disappear. A charm used by goiter rubbers and others as well entailed gazing at a new moon and saying the following charm three times. What I see increases. What I rub decreases. Recognizing iodine deficiency as a cause of goiter, some southern Appalachians ate salt, though it is not clear that it contained iodine, painted the goiter with iodine, or sprinkled iodine on food. Another naturalistic remedy entailed having wasps or bees sting the goiter. Now on to the sting remedies. Again from Mark Norman's Telling the Bees, we can find bee stings and bee venom used in various ways in traditional folk medicine. One cannot say for certain just how effective or otherwise some elements of folk remedies might be but it has often proven to be the case that old wives' tales have more than a grain of truth behind them. Take, for example, the idea that copper coins might be effective in easing the pain from a bee sting. Claims of this nature have been circulating, on the internet at least, for well over ten years. One version of the story tells how a woman working in the garden gets stung and has a bad reaction, causing her arm to swell. She goes to a clinic and gets antihistamine and a cream, but it is not effective, and the following day she sees her regular doctor, who treats the infection with antibiotics. During the treatment, the doctor advises that if it happens again, she should put a penny on the wound for 15 minutes. Conveniently, she, or a relative, gets stung again soon after and applies a coin, and this time there is no swelling or infection. And finally, from the Kitchen Table book, 1,427 Kitchen Cures and pantry potions for just about every health and household problem. Take the ouch out of bites and stings. Bug bites and bee stings hurt and itch. Find relief in your kitchen cabinet with a baking soda remedy. For a bee sting, remove the stinger if it's still in your skin. Do this by scraping a credit card across your skin to pull the stinger out. Then make a paste of water and baking soda and spread it over the injured area. Leave it on for about 30 minutes. 
Baking soda works because it's alkaline, the opposite of an acid. That means it neutralizes the acid in the bee's venom. In a pinch, you can substitute a paste of water and meat tenderizer, or simply apply ice to the injury and reduce swelling and redness. And that's it for this month's episode of the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. As always, thank you so much for listening. If y'all have any interesting bee or beekeeping folklore from your family, please send it along. Don't care what part of the Appalachians you're in or the world, I would love to hear it. All my contact information will be here at the end of the episode shortly, and I'll be seeing y'all in a few weeks with this month's episode of Stories from the Cabin. Y'all be good. Thanks for spending your time with me here at the Appalachian Folklore Podcast. If you'd be so kind as to like, review, and subscribe to this show on whichever platform you use, I'd greatly appreciate it as it helps spread the word. And after all, isn't that what folklore is about? You can find the Appalachian Folklore Podcast on social media at AppFolklorePod. You can also email me with questions, comments, corrections, stories, recipes, etc. at AppFolklorePod at gmail.com. And you can visit my website, shows.acast.com AFP. Thanks to Jonathan Ochoa for the Appalachian Folklore Podcast cover art. The intro music is Stillness by Riviel. The outro music is I Can See the Sky by All Sever Lake. You can find all citations to the references mentioned in this episode in the show notes. Thanks again for listening.